Hey, listen, we're in uh, Exodus chapter uh, 15, so if you have your Bibles, uh, verse 22 is where we're going to pick up the story. Lots in this section we're in today. So Exodus chapter 15. I don't know about you, but sometimes when you're reading through Old Testament uh, narratives, um, sometimes it can be difficult to know what to do with them, you know? Like, I know it's a true story. I know it happened. It really happened to people named Israel, but so what? Right, to be honest with you, that was them. And what am I supposed to do with it? That could be a challenge from time to time. Uh, perhaps you've been through the series and uh, you've sat through all these sermons on Exodus so far. And so uh, by now you've kind of caught really our emphases and our pitch on the story in Exodus. Yes, it is a true story. Exodus is uh, of a real people named Israel and the rescue from slavery in Egypt by God. Uh, and it's also, we're beginning to experience their journey through the wilderness based on God's command. And that is true. But we've also said, and said it so many times, hopefully it's already in the water, that this Exodus story also has a gospel shadow to it. Do you know what I mean by gospel shadow? Everyone in here probably knows what I mean by gospel, good news. The good news that uh, Jesus rescues sinners. And in, in that kind of sets the tone for what I mean by gospel shadow. If you flip your Bible open to the New Testament, you will discover another story, a kind of similar story that God the Son takes on human flesh to lead his people out of their bondage to sin. There's a very similar take in that. And so Jesus becomes in the New Testament what we see in this Old Testament story, the provision for all the needs of his kids. Everything that God is doing at the time for Israel, Christ has fulfilled in his coming. It is an illustration, in effect, of the Exodus story. Jesus becomes the Passover lamb. Passover lamb that basically freed the firstborn from death. Jesus becomes the blood shed to save his kids. Jesus is considered the bread of life. He is the living water. He is the presence of God. He is the very word of God. He is the destination of all our dreams and aspirations. He is the promised land and he is the Sabbath rest. So anytime you discover any particular part of an Old Testament narrative like, like we see in Exodus, you can almost draw a direct parallel to Christ in the gospel. Therein lies the gospel shadow. Do you understand that? So if you're wondering what to do with an Old Testament true story, then just ask the questions what are consistent about God and you, and you'll get close to it. We have a, a big job in front of us, and I'm not certain I'll do a great job of it. We have two and a half chapters. And so there, there's some things in this section that I'm not even going to talk about because we've got to try to make a point and make a point matter. So I'm going to take a particular um, direction on this. What we discover in chapter 15, verse 22 and following is the beginning of the wilderness journey. They have come through the Red Sea. God has rescued them. We just dealt with the song, their, their worship response to God's uh, deliverance in their life. And now we begin the wilderness journey. So I thought it would be good to stop before we go into the rest of this book that is all about the wandering in the desert. And that is to try to learn something about the wilderness. Because if the wilderness is going to be their story, there might be a gospel shadow in it for us. So let's start by answering some questions. I've got just simple questions we're going to try to answer about the wilderness this morning. The first thing is I want you uh, to see or at least ask the question, what's in the wilderness? Let, let's do this. We're going to jump around a lot, so follow along if you would. In 15 verses 22 and 23, let's find out what's in the wilderness. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. 
When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter, therefore it was named Merah. So, so what's in the wilderness? Bitter water. Bitterness is in the, in the wilderness. Look at chapter 16, 1 through 3. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What's in the wilderness? Hunger. Right? There's a, there's a hunger there that is, is written about. Chapter 17, verse 1. Another story. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and encamped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. What's in the wilderness? Thirst. We're tracking so far. One last thing. We're, we're barely going to even talk about this story. Chapter 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Raphadim. First battle for Israel. What's in the wilderness? Enemies are in the wilderness. So I hope you're keeping track here of what's in the wilderness. Trouble is in the wilderness. Difficulty, opposition, thirst, desperation, needs. Does it sound familiar to anybody in here? Anybody tracking with what God's throwing down in this illustration? Okay, just remember, that's what's in the wilderness. I want to answer this question. What's in Israel? Because they're the player in this story. They're experiencing all these things. Let's look and see what's in the people of Israel. Back to chapter 15, verses 23 through 26. Let's find out. It says here... um, when they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah, which means bitterness. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute, a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. You'll see this rhythm, by the way, of hear my words and do what I say constantly now in the rest of this story. Nevertheless, he says that, he says, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. What's in Israel? How about a uh, complaining spirit? How about, a, how about a look at the particular situation they're in and going, this isn't good, there's no way this is good, and so they start to get grumpy. In fact, it's interesting to me, bitter water um, revealed a bitter heart. You have people who have, a, have been exposed. You know this about all of our stories. When you experience something you don't like and something you don't like comes out of you, that situation didn't make it happen. It revealed what was already there. Bitterness was in the heart of Israel. God, all he had to do was bring them to a pond of bitter water. He had an answer for it. didn't matter. They were ready to grumble because they had, they had a complaining spirit. Let's look at else, what else is in Israel. Chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. How about, how about an accusing heart? 
they suddenly turn the situation against Moses and Aaron and blame them, which is interesting about kind of the progression of bitterness. Bitterness does some things to us, but here it, it clearly confuses wants for needs. If you go on, and we will, we'll read more of this, this narrative together, and we'll find out when they get thirsty that they complain that their livestock's going to die. This is an exaggeration of their condition. They're not going to die of hunger. They got beasts with them. We're talking two million Israelis here with all the animals to support it. They could have milk, they could have cheese, and they could kill and eat. They were exaggerating their situation to say, we're going we're to die. We're going to die and we're going to blame you for it. So that's one part of how bitterness kind of confuses our vision, but it's interesting how it fogs their memory. Because here in their complaining spirit, they look at Moses and Aaron and say, hey, wasn't it great back home in Egypt? Well, we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. It was, a one, it was like a barbecue, tailgating. We had it great in Egypt. That's how bad that complaining, accusing spirit is. It's gone. Now, this section is going to be long, but I have to read it. There's so much in it. But we're going to pick it up in verse 4 of chapter, chapter uh, 16. And we're going to look at what God's answer to their hunger, what it produces in Israel or re- reveals in Israel. So hang on there with me. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. You'll see this over and over again. God is testing the people of God, what's in their heart, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as, the, as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord for what, Moses says, what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat in the morning bread to the full because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and the morning dew lay on the Around the camp, and when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, "What, what is this? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it's the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. And this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer, which is about two quarts, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. And when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until the morning. This is a key part. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms, and it stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest. It's a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. 
So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said to them, um, eat today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. 27, here's a problem, but on the seventh day, some people <laughs> went out to gather, and they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? What's in Israel? Unbelief. I mean, we got bitterness. We got accusing spirit here. We've got rebellion, disobedience, lack of faith, doubt. There's so many places God has flexed his muscles for Israel. It's undeniable what God has done. And yet here he is giving simple instructions. Do this, don't do that. Be very specific about your actions. And they said, no, 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 no. When it comes to my hunger, when it comes to my need, I will be my own provider. I will go glean for myself and I will store for my future. I will protect me. It was totally an affront against God and his care for his people. There was so much in them. Like I said before, this situation didn't make it happen. It revealed that it was already there. What else is in Israel? How about blasphemy? Look at chapter 17, 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? You notice the switch in words here. Everywhere we've seen it so far, God was testing the people. Now the people are testing the Lord. But the people twist, uh, thirsted there for water. And people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall we do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? What's in Israel? <laughs> Blasphemy. They turn this moment, their circumstance, in a place to judge the Lord. In verse two, they demand that he provides, right? Give us water to drink. Emphatic, do it. They deny that God protects them in verse Three, why did you bring us to kill us? Why did, you, why did you do this? Your intentions are bad. And then ultimately they question whether God's with them. Remember, God has taken up a position of a cloud and fire everywhere they go. And for them to sit in this position and say, mm, we're not certain anymore, is to deny the presence of God. They had the audacity to put God on trial for attempted murder. You brought us out here to kill us. In fact, the words are very interesting. Um, when the words uh, tested are used in verse 2 and verse 7, it's a Hebrew word used for a covenant lawsuit. Interesting. The whole thing has the look of a trial. We have those presenting their grievances. We are the victims. We are the ones that you are hurting. And then God says to Moses, go get the elders whose sole job was to pass judgment on disputed matters. So you've got, you've got the jury. You've got those who were, were victims. You've got the jury. Now you also have the judge because he says to Moses, bring your staff. You know the staff you struck the Nile with? 
you know, the staff that represents power and authority in my judgment, that, that thing I've given you to show to Pharaoh and to the people of Israel whenever I decide to make a statement about something, you, you bring the elders who will be the jury and I'll bring the judgment and God does that. And he reminds him about this staff. If you remember the story, it was after the people of Israel have gone through the dry bed of the Red Sea and Pharaoh's armies had followed Israel into that space. God said to Moses, take the staff and strike the, strike the sea so that it will bring my judgment upon Pharaoh and his armies. And it happened. God killed them all. So much so, the text tells us they're not going to hear from Egypt again. God's judgment. And he tells Moses, strike the rock, bring the judgment down. It is almost as if you can hear God say to the people of Israel, you are so out of line to accuse me of not fulfilling my promises. Boom, he strikes the rock and water gushes out to feed them. It's almost hard to even fathom what they're doing. It's, the scene is so absurd. They're trying to hold God accountable for failure. How could, how could they make those accusations against him? How could they test the Lord that somehow in this particular situation where they're just thirsty, God hasn't provided, hasn't provided, hasn't provided, and hasn't promised and kept his promise, and yet they're wanting to test him like that. They didn't like God's leadership. They didn't think he knew what he was doing. They refused to see that they were the ones with the problem. Does it sound familiar? Gospel shadows anyone? They're the ones who couldn't see the goodness of God. Didn't matter what God did. Didn't matter about all the plagues. Didn't matter about the rescue from Pharaoh. Didn't, didn't matter that his presence in the cloud or in the fire didn't lead them. Didn't matter that they just got done with the worship service where they recognized that. They continued to deny it with this wandering heart. They simply hated their circumstances. One writer said this about this particular part of 17. To our amazement, when Israel put God to the test, as wrong as that was, God went ahead and gave them the hearing that they wanted in order to teach them the way of salvation. He submitted himself to judgment, not their judgment, but his own. Sound familiar to anybody? To put himself in the pathway of judgment is the picture of Christ who hung on the cross to bear the weight of sin, not of his own, but of us to bear the weight of God's wrath and judgment, not for his offenses, but for us. That's clearly what's happening here. So what's in Israel? Fear, complaining, grumbling, judgment, lack of faith, unrealistic expectations, disappointments, anger, disobedience. It is not a pretty picture, but church, tell me, does it sound familiar? It's, it's almost so familiar, it's laughable. Okay, we've talked about what's in the wilderness, trouble, <laughs> and we've talked about what's in Israel, and that's that rebellious heart, that wandering heart, the lack of faith, the fear, the grumbling part. But I, I want to answer one more question. I want to answer this question. Who's in the wilderness? God is. God's in the wilderness. It's undeniable. He's giving his provision at Merah, turning bitter water into sweet for the sake of his people, his provision is in the wilderness bringing bread from heaven to feed the needs of his people. His provision is bringing water to the thirsty at Rabbanon. His provision is to be a Sabbath rest to a people who were enslaved. He's there. God's in the wilderness. 
God's in the wilderness by giving them his presence to be seen in a cloud and a, and a fire led the people constantly everywhere they went. He's undeniably with them. God's presence is seen in his voice to the people. If you do these things, you will be blessed. I've got a word. Obey the word. God's presence was always there in his word. His presence was in the reigning of manna from heaven for 40 years. Every morning you wake up and he's here. He's here again. His presence was standing, actually taking a position. I don't even know what it means specifically. Many writers have tried, but no matter what, it was a picture of God standing at the, at the, the rock at Horeb, bringing his judgment and his rescue for the people. His presence was undeniable. We don't have time to even study it, but obviously even in the next little story of the battle against the Amalekites, his presence was there in that battle, bringing victory. God's in the wilderness. God's in the wilderness. He's giving his protection from Pharaoh and his armies, from the deliverance from the Red Sea, from the future battles that they will fight. God is bringing his protection. He's also seen in his patience to a people who complain incessantly, who accuse incessantly that God isn't good, a people who, who don't want the salvation that God himself is providing, like, I wish it was different. Like, you rescued me from Egypt, but I wish it was just like smooth sailing, that there was no moments where I had to trust you with faith or believe that you were going to rescue this situation. I want it different than that. I don't want that salvation. I want a different one. And yet, he lovingly leads them. In spite of that incessant whining and grumbling, four times the text tells us in chapter 16 that God heard the grumbling of his people. Now, I'm not God, and this is not trying to be blasphemous. I would not have put up with it. Grumble once, maybe. After that, we're in the woodshed. You know what I'm saying? We're, we're not going to put up with four of these things because I've showed myself faithful and showed myself faithful and more than enough in every situation, and you keep resisting me. And yet the text tells us that he heard their grumbling in his patience and that he not only provided, but he provided way more than they needed. The text says to satisfaction. Like, I'm done. Push away from the table. I'm full. This is different than barely getting by. God was doing great things for his people, but they wouldn't see it. His patience is on display when they start to accuse him of attempted murder and neglect. He's like the best father who could ever have lived, who is in his love, is patient with his kids even when he's mistreated. That is who is in the wilderness. God's in the wilderness. He's in the wilderness keeping his promise to rescue his people. And nothing, not even a stubborn, hard-hearted, grumbling people like this can stop him. Not a pharaoh, not a sea, not an army, not a thirst, not a hunger, not a stupid thought in a man's mind can stop God from keeping the promise to rescue his kids, period. You hear in the gospel echoes. Well, you should. God keeps his promise. You don't have to turn there. Let me just remind you what Israel should have never forgot, and that is the promise of God to deliver. He says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." 
I will bring you into land that I swore to give Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Any questions? God keeps his promises. He never quits. His word stands. God is in the wilderness. Now, have you, if you've been following the trajectory of this story, you, you can see where this text points, right? Points to our hearts. To every one of us. Yes, this is a true story about a real people named Israel, but it is the gospel shadow story of our journey with Christ. What, what do you and I experience in our life of faith with him? You already know, don't you? Trouble. Difficulty. Deeds, desperation, opposition. Doesn't that describe a little bit of what it is to walk your life with Christ? Trying so hard to hang on and yet it's not that easy. And if we're honest, let's just be honest. We can just say it's not, it's not easy, it's very hard. To some, I mean, it's as simple as my marriage is blown apart. It's blown apart at the seams. Like we both confess Jesus, but we somehow can't make this thing work. And we're faking it. We're faking everyone else. And we're trying to hold it together. My kids, they're clueless. They don't care anything about what I care most about. And I'm trying to give it to them, but they don't seem to want it. And so my, my greatest affection for my children is being rebuffed. To some, we, we lose jobs. We have a problem with employment. And so obviously that equals a money issue. Your kid could die in an accident. doctor could tell you that something's wrong. You experience profound anxiety and fear. <laughs> to some of you, the sun never goes all the way up. It doesn't get there. Like, it just can't warm your heart. It's always, always dark for you. <laughs> and to some of you, your own, your own worst enemy. Like, you've got a struggle, you've got a sin issue, you've got a chink in your armor, and it just defeats you and defeats you and defeats you, and so you keep your head down, you don't serve, you don't confess, you just kind of live in the dregs of the whole thing. Is it hard? Of course it's hard. Of course it is. It's very hard for us. Our journey has a lot of trouble in it. But we have to be honest about the biggest trouble, and that is the trouble in us. We have a problem just like Israel has a problem. We grumble, we disobey, we're, we have fear, we have doubt, we have a lack of faith. We focus on the problem more than the problem solver. We're more, more convinced of the issues than the one who can solve the issues. James says to consider our trials as a joy for the good that they produce in us. But we can't see it. We won't see it. So we question the very way that God is saving us. We don't even like it. So we fire off a series of questions at God because someone has to explain my pain. Someone is responsible for how I'm feeling. But we won't own the fact that I don't believe and I won't confess and I won't live and hear his word and do what he says. I'm just kind of lost and I'm experiencing my suffering and I blame God. And does it sound familiar? It sounds like Israel, right? I've got one so what. 
but I want to save it for just a second because I want to give us a little bit of perspective on the wilderness this morning before we move on to that one so what. Please hear me on this. You need to know that wilderness is from God. It's not an accident. You probably didn't even pay attention to it, but in verse 22 of 15, when we started this wilderness journey, it says, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. Just a couple of questions. Who's leading Moses? Come on. God is. So therefore, who's ultimately leading Israel? God. The wilderness was God's idea. It is no mistake. In fact, if you have your um, New Testament in your mind, you remember these words. Jesus said, I've told you these things so that in me you might have peace. Because in this world you're going to have Trouble. Merry Christmas. Paul says in Philippians that it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him. And Peter tells us then don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that some come to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Do you see the the connection to all those things? You're going to have trouble. Trouble's part of your life. Don't be surprised. Because God's leading us in it. Here's another truth about wilderness. Wilderness is the only way to get home. Israel was truly saved by God from its slavery. Truly. Um, But it hadn't gotten to the promised land yet. And the distance between the rescue of Egypt and the promised land that we see and read in the narrative is 40 years of wandering is the process of their sanctification them learning what God has said and learning to obey what God has said and seeing what was revealed in their hearts and confessing and figuring out worship, all that stuff is the process, same as us. We confess based on the gospel, the good news is that we are saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. There is nothing you add to what Christ does for you. You don't work your way out of your hole. You are, you are given a gift to get out of your hole, the gift of faith. But... As much as you are rescued from the darkness of sin, you are yet sanctified. And you begin the process when you confess Christ, when God opens your eyes and you believe and you make him your Lord and Savior, you begin the process of sanctification and it is called the wilderness. And the wilderness job is to reveal, right? To reveal things in our life, to refine things in our life and to renew things in our life. God uses it. The wilderness is his idea. And there's no, there's no way around that. You might ask a question even of Israel's story. Why 40 years of wandering? Because sanctification takes a lifetime. It takes a long, 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 long time. Uh, just a couple of thoughts. I didn't read this verse, but on purpose. I want you to remember about the wilderness that there's always way more desert than oasis. Verse 27 of chapter 15 is this weird little verse that sits in here. Where it says they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they camped there. What does that sound like to you? Sounds like awesome. Like compared to wilderness, like we got all these, all these ponds, um, all these palm trees. It was like a total wonderful little oasis for them. But it's only one verse. The rest of it's hard work. The rest of it's wilderness. Just, just so you know, and I say this on purpose. There's always more desert in your life than oasis, so don't expect different. Prepare yourself. Thank God when it's not hard. 
Okay, one last thing. There aren't any shortcuts to the promised land. I mean, I read the map. I can look at the map. If they'd have gone north and left, they'd have been there in two weeks. Didn't work out that way. There aren't any shortcuts to becoming like Christ, to working out the issues that you don't even know you have, the stuff that you hold on to, to manage your life and your fears. God's going God's to gonna peel back every stubborn finger. He will win. He's not frustrated by the process. He's not worn out by the timing. It's all perfect in his timing. You're the only one that's bothered by it. There aren't any shortcuts. Here's my so what, and we're done. You can remember this. So be thankful. This is the hardest thing in the, in the world to do when you're going through hard things, troubling things, is to say thank you. The most glaring absence in this particular story is that Israel was never really thankful. Thankful people admit their needs and they always see God's provision. It could be said, and I think it's rightfully so, that right now we are in the wilderness of sorts. We're in the space between God rescuing from our slavery to sin and before he fully creates the image of Christ in us in glory, there's this distance called life. And that's the space that we're in. So church... Love the wilderness for the reason God gives it. If you won't say thank you, I know how this finishes. Bitterness, resentment, accusation, denial, blasphemy. You have to say thank you. And I'm not trying to be a crazy man here. I'm just saying, listen, when it's hard, I know it's hard. People can empathize with you. But God knows what he's doing. Somewhere when it's all said and done, I don't have the particular answers for why that. I say right after that, yet God, thank you because I'm just going to trust that I'm the human in this story and you're the creator, sustainer, the doer of life and I submit myself to you with a thankful heart. I know it's hard, but what else do we have? What would you have told Israel when they're accusing God and testing God and questioning the leadership of Moses, bitter and angry, and it didn't matter what God showed them. They continued to go wrong places. I, I, I think if we stop and say thank you, I don't know if I've ever finished this thought, but I think it's really hard to sin if you're thankful. Just a thought. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for the reminder of the wilderness. We are people, so we confess our limitations. We confess our pain and how it feels. But Father, what we know about you and what you do is greater than what I feel. So Lord, I pray that we would truly be a thankful people, thankful for how specific you are working in our life to shape the image of Christ until we get home. Um, Lord, we submit to that in Christ's name. Amen.